I'm Francine, and we're here again for another episode of The Medical Republic. And today is going to be a little bit of a painful episode, but there's no reason to be afraid. Uh, Felicity, can you tell us why? So I went to the ACLA conference last week. The rheumatology conference in yeah. Brizzy. And uh, there was this one session that was really interesting, and it was all about pain. It was a really popular session. I saw on Twitter that people were raving about the speaker. Yeah, so it was this talk from a professor from the University of South Australia called Lorimer Mosley. Um, so he's a professor of clinical neuroscience, and he had some really interesting experiments and ideas that he was sharing. Okay, so what's the rundown? The thing that got people's attention was this idea that in a consultation with a patient who's experiencing chronic pain, the doctor can make it worse by the words that they use in the consultation. That's really interesting for GPs particularly. I was writing a story last week on Pain Australia's recent statistics and they were estimating that one in three patients approximately that sees a GP has a complaint about being in pain. And it's awful if you go to the GP and they make you feel worse (laughs) by using um, certain types of language. But it was actually quite controversial. So it was this one PowerPoint slide that really set off people on Twitter. Basically, on one side of the screen, uh, there's a patient uh, and he's complaining that he has a bad back. And the doctor responds to him and he's saying, oh, yeah, you know, your back's really sore because you're older and that's what happens when you get old, you know. And yeah. it's like a pinched nerve and you're deteriorating. <laughs> yeah, like get used to it, Greg, you're, you're heading towards your 70s. This is a normal rite of passage. But then on the other side of the screen, this is the contrast, uh, the doctor is instead saying, you know, backs, they adapt as life goes on and they're highly well protected. And it actually kind of takes a more scientific approach uh, to, I guess, explaining to the patient these are some of the factors that are contributing to your pain. Yeah, absolutely. But some people on Twitter were complaining that it was a bit patronising to explain uh, back pain as a protective effect. So one of the things they say is backs are very well protected by a sophisticated alarm system. Yours is working too well. (laughs) And can you imagine if you're seeing a patient and they complain to you about severe pain and you get that response, you'd be a bit like, okay, yeah, but it's still... It still really hurts. (laughs) But, I mean, the management is still the same. So they still give them a referral in both scenarios. They still say, do you want to see a psychologist to manage your your pain? And they obviously would prescribe medication. So the treatment is exactly the same. It's just which, which description of pain they're deciding to use. And just reading the one about pinched nerves just makes you go, ugh. Yeah, it already makes me sit up straighter just now because I'm, like, (laughs) just thinking about it. Just thinking about it makes it feel worse. But um, the interesting thing, as you were saying, is that according to this professor, uh, the one that's a little bit softer, which talks, talks about how your body is protecting itself, is actually more scientifically accurate when you think about modern pain science. A lot of people, including myself, uh, are under the impression that pain is uh, a very simple physical response to a stimulus. So if you, um, you know, punch me in the face... <laughs> Probably the, this, you know. Okay, just just give us 10 minutes. We're just going to go to the car park and test this one out. Uh, yeah, so I'd probably have some kind of neural signal from my face to my brain, um, which would be interpreted as pain. That would be normal, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's kind of how it works. And, and if it was a really 
like a light punch, it wouldn't be so bad. But if it was like really severe, then I'd probably experience quite a bit of pain. And that's how people think about, you know, pain response. It's pretty simple understanding of it. And it's very biological. It's very structural and mechanical. Um, there's not a lot of psychology in there. Um, but modern pain science kind of, there's been a lot of research over decades showing that pain is really not that simple. So your experience of pain can change depending on your context. So there's experiments that they've done where they show if you're given a stimulus that causes pain in the presence of a red light, you experience more pain than if you're in the presence of a blue light (laughs) because the red light uh, communicates danger and your brain kind of upregulates your pain response because it thinks it's in danger. And so basically modern pain science tries to incorporate all of the different things that could be causing you to uh, upregulate pain or downregulate it. So the biological mechanism of tissue damage is one aspect of that, but there could be lots of other things. So it could be you're in a really hot room or, you know, your relationships are falling apart or someone's using really horrible language. Or it's your podcast last episode. (laughs) It could be pretty much anything. While the biological mechanism is, is quite similar, I guess, across patients, all of those other factors, that it's called the biopsychosocial factors, um, are very different depending on the person. And, and these things are summed up as danger signals and safety signals. And the interesting thing is they've shown that if they explain this to patients uh, over the long term, so after about a year, patients with chronic pain actually have less pain because they have this understanding of how complicated experiences of pain really are. Those same signals that come across in terms of interpreting pain in all those different ways also comes down to the way that pain is already treated. So referring on to this multidisciplinary pain management, which might include uh, a patient seeing a nutritionist, a physio, a psychologist, even a psychiatrist, and all of those elements playing a part in how you manage pain uh, and also in some cases prescription medication as well. So understanding modern pain science is very much interlinked with how that multidisciplinary treatment plays out. Oh, absolutely. But the thing is, patients aren't going to be wanting to go see a psychologist if they think that their pain is purely biological. You know, a psychologist isn't going to help me. Of course. You just need to give me a drug that stops this yeah. particular thing. Just make it stop. <laughs> I know that you caught up with Professor Mosley after his talk as well. Should we maybe uh, cross back to some of the interview questions that you had with him outside the lecture? I'm Professor Lorimer Mosley. I'm Professor of Clinical Neuroscience at the University of South Australia. So do you want to start by explaining uh, what is pain? (laughs) That's a brutal question to start with. Uh, Well, my understanding of pain is that it is a protective feeling that's generated uh, when the brain thinks protective action is going to be good to do. Every health professional uh, who is charged with the responsibility, I guess, of helping people with painful situations, in my view, should understand what the science tells us about pain. And contemporary pain science really emphasises the biopsychosociality of it. Uh, And context is critical, absolutely critical, because context is what uh, tells the brain whether or not protection is warranted and is going to be beneficial. 
So you can have your arm sliced off uh, in one context and not feel a thing. Your brain produces no pain and you could have a paper cut in another context that's very painful. The critical determinant of pain is context. A significant proportion of people will, will cause them to fold their arms and say, oh, well, this psychology business, pain is a message. Pain's not a message from the body at all, and we, we now know that 100% to be the case. And how can rheumatologists deliver safety cues instead of danger cues when they're talking about pain? Yeah, I get this sort of question a lot, and I think a lot of the time it's asked, people are looking for a list of do's and don'ts, um, which you could construct. You know, you could include do's, would be reassurance, clever reassurance, uh, ease distress, consider mood, all these sorts of things. The don'ts would be, you know, don't say your your joints rotting, or you've got the the you've got the joints of a seventy year old if they're forty. They don't. They've got the joints of a forty year old, possibly with an inflammatory condition. But you can talk about that differently in this situation. And any clinician should understand contemporary pain science. Because what we do know is that when you understand contemporary pain science, you intuitively uh, start to introduce the concepts in your conversations. You start to be aware of delivering safety cues. You start to be aware of, of postural responses in, in the person in front of you that tells you they're, they're feeling in danger. Um, yeah, it sounds more reassuring, but also more scientifically accurate, which is what you're after. Um, and I thought this was fascinating, the idea that a patient's understanding of pain, a scientific understanding and a rigorous understanding could really change their experience of pain um, over the course of a year. Why does that happen? <laughs> uh, well, if we knew it completely, we'd bottle it because the data are really exciting. Um, and it's really important as a scientist, it's very important for me to put in the caveat that uh, we are certainly not perfect at explaining it. That cohort of 1,600 people, a year later, those people are almost pain-free. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And we're not excluding the reality of disease processes and stuff like that. Um, but why does it happen? Well, I, I would predict that that should happen. Uh, in my understanding of pain, if we consider that pain is a protective feeling, and if you can integrate into someone's processing system or their brain the knowledge that their pain system is currently being overprotective so they are actually safer than it feels right if you can really integrate them then it it makes total sense to me that then the brain would protect a bit less so it would start to align the feeling that it's producing with its understanding of reality so uh, why it's a slow process is, is a really interesting question. So we, we don't see these immediate changes in pain when people learn stuff, but we start to see those changes emerge over weeks and they keep going. And what I think is happening is that the, the new knowledge gives the system permission to push into that protective feeling a little bit and it gets feedback to say everything's okay, so it pushes in a little bit more and then you're, you're on the journey. Uh, and if you've got a good coach... To encourage you when you flare up, which you will, you'll flare up. You, know, you sort of go a bit hard on something, or you have a range of these things we call dims, um, other evidence of danger, and your system tips over into a flare up. Then it's very powerful to have a coach there to remind you: okay, a flare up is highly protective. It doesn't tell you you've damaged something. It doesn't tell you you've torn something, or 
what it tells you is that you pushed in a bit far. So how can we learn from that and change the, prog- the progression plan a little bit? Um, and this is all driven by a scientific understanding of pain. Um, does your intervention, this intervention of education, change depending on culture and belief system? So maybe if someone's um, uh, believes more in Chinese traditional medicine or alternative medicine, is it difficult to tackle this with a more scientific education approach? Hey, that's a really nice question, and I guess it, it um, points to how how limited so far our impact has been and, and, and by saying our I mean the, the paint community because we are still focused on a small proportion of humanity but what we do know is that the, the way someone thinks uh, will make a contemporary science based message easier or harder to stick so I would, I would imagine and I don't know of any randomised controlled trials looking at the effect of contemporary pain science education in uh, Chinese community. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's been done, uh, but I would predict that there would be other strategies to, to integrate that and to value the place they're coming from and to integrate the new knowledge into their current schema. Uh, but there are experts who have been studying how to do that in different fields not health fields but in education for a long time Um, and this is a I mean these things are a problem in lots of spheres right people believing stuff that's complete nonsense in some cases Uh, and then we have to work out okay so how do we how do we teach people the world's not flat if they're convinced that it is that's a challenge um, well, there's lots of um, rheumatologists from China around, so maybe you can talk to them and ask and find out. Yeah, <laughs> That'd cool. be fascinating to know. Cool. Um, I think, I've got I think I'll, if I can add something to that, because I think that we also have to remain open-minded that there is rich data in those other understandings of the human, and that might guide our science. You know, It's not like it's a one-way street. I think that we have to be very collaborative when we're problem-solving. Uh, so we might learn heaps as we go into those other cultures and we might be able to have an even better understanding of the science of pain as a result. This all depends on rheumatologists being able to explain to the patient why they're experiencing pain and what pain is in a really clear way. Do you have any strategies for rheumatologists about how to do that? Hmm. Uh, Well, rheumatologists are not the lone rangers there. And I'd probably say that uh, the, the key outcome that would be terrific is that all health professionals have a contemporary understanding of pain that reflects its biopsychosociality that's I mean that's that is the contemporary understanding of pain um, rheumatologists have to know a lot about a lot uh, not just about pain but um, I guess the maybe a, an alternative outcome is that rheumatologists have access to experts in pain education um, Rheumatologists, we probably can't afford for them to spend the time getting down into the nitty-gritty of pain education because it's time-consuming. It requires a, a skill set, a knowledge level that it would be hard to add to the rheumatologist toolkit. Uh, but if they're able to operate from a place of contemporary pain science and to value with the with the patient to say, you know, I reckon what what we now understand is that people are. are 
having a really good response to increasing their understanding of pain, and they're experts in that. Would you like to know more about that opportunity? Uh, and then they have a, a good little network of pain educators around the place to, to whom they can refer. Mm. I think that would be the better outcome. So it's almost like we need whole of community education so that we don't have any health professionals, and ideally we don't have anyone talking nonsense uh, based on 400-year-old models of how the pain system works. And then we have, where it's needed, we have high-level training, uh, people with high-level training, high-level expertise in conceptual change and in facilitating learning of new models for patients and, they, and in funding models that work. You know, so really we can only afford at the moment for allied health nursing people to, to spend that time uh, and we just need funding schemes that allow them to do it. Uh, and then it's a referral system. I mean, then it, it, it's, it's treated as though it's an intervention that's effective. And that would be great because it is an intervention that's effective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, com- I can imagine you doing it with, you know, YouTube videos or something or some program where it's a, it's a bit easier to s- visualise and see what's going on. Yeah, know. well, I mean, w- there are now lots of resources out there and we rely heavily on those resources. Our, our group has done educational videos uh, that are freely available and Tame the Beast is one that's called Tame the Beast. And uh, we, we do a thing called Pain Revolution, which is aiming at whole of community change of, of understanding of pain and embedding capacity in communities to explain pain well. Uh, so, you know, you can look at the resources on Pain Revolution and that will provide links to some of the really nice educational uh, videos on the web. Uh, there are books, there are people running courses. Uh, and what Pain Revolution, the long game Pain Revolution is that in every community we will have a regular pain education event uh, and we resource those people. It's a free event and the public goes along so that any any GP or other medical doctor anywhere sees someone with, uh, with pain and is able to say, okay, and can you get down to the surf club on the last Thursday of this month, uh, here's a prescription, go and attend that education seminar because that will give you a really interesting new opportunity to improve your life that would be my vision i would love to see that and maybe in 10 years we'll we might have something like that starting to emerge excellent well thank you so much for your time today that was fascinating to hear more about pain science it's a pleasure thanks for having me felicity the thing i love about this is it's basically science is medicine which is fantastic it's just understanding how your body works is a way of making you feel less pain. That's yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> so we should probably break the news that this is the last episode of this season of the Medical Republic podcast. But we'd also love to hear from you all. So if you have any ideas of stories or content that you'd really love to hear in our podcast, then please get in contact. You can email either myself, Francine, or Felicity, it's just our first name, at medicalrepublic.com.au, or we're also on Twitter, or even just our regular website. My Twitter handle is at Frankie Crimmins. And I'm at Frogs and Stars.